Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And, uh, and of course, we need to be talking about His righteousness, because we're supposed to be seeking the Kingdom of God and His righteousness. Of course, that's after we repent. Repenting means changing the way we were thinking before. And, of course, since we were small children, people have been telling us how to think, or trying to guide us in the way we think, or control our thinking. And uh, this has been common since uh, man first walked in the garden. He had uh, two trees there, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. And uh, the tree of knowledge is uh, a metaphor. Uh, there may have been an actual tree sitting there. Uh, that is the way metaphors often work. They're actually objects. And uh, they are used as a metaphor because they actually uh, represent something that is not just physical. That is something that might be of the mind or of the spirit. The word mind and spirit are sometimes interchangeable in the uh, Hebrew text. And so, the way our spirit goes, or our soul goes, actually it's the word soul and mind that are interchangeable, but then soul and spirit are often connected. We think of them as the same thing. And uh, what it really amounts to is that we live in a body. Our spiritual being and our soul live in a body. We have our soul is sometimes defined as corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments of personality. A very complicated statement using lots of words and can mean lots of different things to lots of different people which is the whole concept of words and language. In the beginning, Christ was the Word, and the Word, you know, was made flesh. And so, they're using a particular word in the Greek, which is logos, which means more than just language. It means reasoning, and even specifically right reasoning. But words are symbols of ideas. And so when Matthew wrote his inspired gospel, he used words. And those words can have different meaning depending on where we pick those words out of the tree of knowledge. We can define the words one way, and lots of people do, and then there's lots of people who define words another way. And words have multiple definitions in almost every dictionary, unless you get a very abbreviated one. There'll be definition one, and definition two, and definition three. Well, if you do that with thousands of words, and you put them all together in hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of sentences, and hundreds of chapters and verses, you can get different meanings from the same text. So, though Matthew wrote an inspired gospel, he wrote it in a finite language. And unless you sit down and read it with the same Holy Spirit that inspired him, you may not get it. (laughs) You may not understand it. I may not understand it. None of us may understand it. 
Now, some of us can climb around in the tree of knowledge looking at, well, this word is defined this way and that word is defined that way. And, but how do we decide which definition to accept as the meaning of Matthew? Well, again, that goes back to that Holy Spirit, which is represented by a metaphor of the tree of life, a source of knowing that is beyond our mere intellect, the divine spark. It's referred to in lots of different ways throughout the biblical and other sacred texts as well. The Bhagavad Gita and the uh, Arthavedas and all these texts that have come down to us have been translated many times from Sanskrit to to all sorts of different languages and then perverted by people with their own agenda from the meaning of whatever the author originally intended. And uh, were some of these other books inspired? Possibly. There's reason to believe that Abraham may have wrote some of the Arthaveda texts. Now, I don't know. We we don't have anything in his handwriting. <laughs> so Because we're going going way back. But we know that Moses had access to all kinds of the libraries of Egypt, which may have had texts from all over the world. Egypt traded with people all over the world. And so they they probably sent out archaeologists. (laughs) Back 2,000 years before Christ, archaeologists were excavating other places. I mean, the whole idea and the story of the Sphinx was created supposedly pre-flood and was discovered by the guy who built the pyramids because the pyramids were supposedly built after the Sphinx. And under the Sphinx, there was a room that was discovered. They, they know it existed there. They actually bored into one of the rooms and uh, they sent down instruments to detect a vibration coming from those rooms. I know the guy who was actually standing there and doing it <laughs> at the time. He's passed away since. But, uh yeah, the, there's all kinds of mysteries out there. All kinds of little pieces of knowledge that uh that everybody doesn't have access to. And uh, there's an awful lot of ignorance out there, which is just the absence of some of that knowledge. And uh, with the absence of that knowledge, you can come to faulty conclusions. But if you're eating of the tree of life, the theory is that tree of life will guide you in the fact that, oh, you, you're missing something. <laughs> and a, another piece of the puzzle that you need to get. And so, you know, I actually recently did an interview. We announced it on the network. Uh, it came out last week, I think. And we announced it this week. And uh, it's gotten a lot of views. And uh, I was reading some of the uh, critiques of it. Uh, I had actually become mysteriously deathly ill the day before. And had run fevers that night. I don't know if maybe... Uh, some sort of toxin or something like that, but I was on the mend that morning and my voice was gone from the time I woke up. <laughs> but anyway, it was an interesting interview and a lot of an, the quality of an interview has to do with the quality 
of the person person asking the questions. They have to be genuinely interested in what the topic is about or what you might have to say on the topic. You know, I had an interview with an atheist who really was from the very beginning trying to figure out how to trap me into saying something that he could uh, argue against to prove his point. That was not the case with the Ed Slover interview, which is, you know, we, we've shared the, uh, the videos and, uh, and that evidently has had quite a few views since we shared it and uh, positive feedback. But you have to remember that it's a half hour, 20 minute interview on an infinite subject <laughs> with a, a very little, you know, when you, somebody asks a question, you almost have to set the scene these days. You know, there is no topic that is safe because we've all got preconceived notions. And uh, even, you know, it used to be just keep your conversation you know, to the weather, <laughs> but you can't even do that anymore. Don't get in, in, into anything controversial. Well, almost everything is controversial today, and it's because there is so much pervasiveness of lies, which are, lies are just simply the lack of the whole truth is is the greatest lie. Just don't tell them the whole truth, and you have a, the makings of a great lie. And the more truth you put in a lie, the more believable it becomes. But you have to leave something out to make it a lie. And so there's been a lot left out. And so we're going through Matthew and discussing the kingdom of heaven and that righteousness. And Matthew was an inspired book. And it was written in Greek from what we know. It's likely, you know, appears that Matthew, by the Greek that we see, was a scholar of Greek, but also knew Hebrew. So the Greek words he chose are because of his original understanding of Hebrew, which may have been his first language. And so when you're reading it, you know, if you have the Holy Spirit, you can figure a lot of things out. But you're not trying to figure them out intellectually if you're reading them with the Holy Spirit. You're, you're listening to the Holy Spirit and we're using the words of Matthew as a springboard to understanding what Matthew was talking about and talking for. Because Matthew, if he was inspired, and to me it appears that he was, that uh, he is trying to impart to you that inspiration from that Holy Spirit through a finite thing called language. And we we looked in chapter 24, and we saw Jesus was foretelling the destruction of the temple. But he was actually also foretelling the destruction, destruction of himself, because we are temples in which the Holy Spirit may dwell, or may not. Maybe other spirits will dwell in this temple, or influence this temple, this body. And you want, in order to put on the full armor of God to protect you from those other spirits of ideas and philosophies and ideologies, 
You need to accept the whole truth. And, you know, lots of people read the Bible because there's a lot of truth in the Bible. There's a lot of evidence of inspiration, of something profound in the life of Christ, in the life of Abraham, in the life of Moses, in the life of the prophets. And we can read this and it brings us in touch with something we know is very, very important. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the movie, Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, where he kept having these visions. This is important, you know, and it supposedly makes this statue of a mountain out of mashed potatoes. But he doesn't know how it's important. And that's a little bit of what I talked about uh, on the interview is, you know, when I was growing up, I would see certain things and I knew they were important, but I didn't really know what they meant. And I don't know if I'll ever know fully what some of those things meant, but my understanding of it increased over a period of time because I continued to pursue. And, of course, that is where the gospel begins, is seek, pursue the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. It's a journey. And, you know, I often say the journey is the destination. We want to get on that journey. And, of course, we won't get on that journey of seeking the truth if we think we've already got it. So we have to sometimes set down some of the things. I didn't say throw them out. Just set set them down for a second and pursue a greater understanding of the inspiration of Matthew. And that's what we hope to do. He goes on in 24 and talks about the sign of the end of the age. Not the end of the world or the planet, but the end of the age. Because that's the word that is there. And he tells us not to be troubled, which is a constant theme. Fear not. Don't don't be worried about it. There'll, there'll be wars. Kingdom against kingdoms. And we we see a lot of that. And we've seen a lot of that lately. And, and there's talk about how, you know, millions upon millions, billions of people are developing an animosity towards the United States. There's a lot of people that like the United States. And uh, I live in the United States. But I live of the world of Jesus Christ. And the way of Jesus Christ. Because, and I, you know, I actually, this week I translated something. It was a document that was uh, at the Nicene Council. There was questions about the Nicene Council. And I had been working on a lot of the people that were at the Nicene Council, studying their history. Find out, was there was there something we did wrong at the Nicene Council? <laughs> something we got wrong? I mean, where, what were these ideas that came? Because there was a lot of controversy that came out of the Nicene Council and all the new bishops that were being added in because of the proclamation of Constantine that everybody in a particular town and everybody in a city and everybody even in the Roman Empire were supposed to be getting baptized and becoming Christians. And they hadn't really done much seeking of the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. They were just getting baptized. And they knew they still had to perform the function of religion, which was the care of the needy of society. That's one of the functions of religion. That's the way it was defined for 
years and years and years. And there's all kinds of means and methods by which we can take care of the needy of society. Some of those means and methods are destructive and are the antithesis of what Christ and John the Baptist and all the prophets preached. preached. And some of those were still acceptable to those newly baptized individuals under the Church of Constantine. Now, Paul had contended with many of those people, but many of those people, you know, many of the people of early Christianity in his epistles, he's writing them and saying, no, you know, you guys, you know, don't eat at this table. There is a table that Christ sets. That's the table we're supposed to be eating from. That has a very specific meaning, which most modern Christians don't understand. Because they don't know what he means by table. I mean... Peter says that it's not right that we wait on tables. And he uses that word tables again. But it had a different meaning there. That same word table is actually translated bank in the Bible. And sometimes it's translated table and sometimes it's translated bank. And it doesn't always mean a bank. But it means something from which we get things from. A source. Well, the tree of knowledge is a source and the tree of life is a source. Trees were sources in the Hebrew language. It was a source of food or a source of materials or a source of all sorts of things. So, I mean, the word tree actually can also mean a source. And we use the word tree as a... Like uh, the Hebrews often used in Sanskrit even as well used the word tower. Which meant like a family tree would be a family tower. Which gives us a, a different view of the Tower of Babel. And then of course if you understand that all governments are based on the law. the the What they used to call the Asurus, ancient laws of the family. The family laws. And that's why the emperor was called our father, our Patronus, why the senators were called the conscripted patres, conscripted fathers. And it's also why Christ said, call no man on earth father. But So I just threw out there a little piece of information about this word father, which we'll see here in Matthew 25, which will be the topic of today. But I thought we'd do a little bit of review because Matthew 25 starts out as a continuation of 24. And so, some of those things that we talked about in last week's show on the 24, uh, Matthew 24 and, and uh, 23 was setting the scene. And, and part of that scene was the abomination of desolation. Uh, that, that we may have to flee that des- desolation. And he talks about what we should believe not. And of course, there are certain things that are believed today amongst modern churchanity, uh, or, or, you know, the synagogues or religions of the world that just ain't so. And we should not believe them. But we need to replace, when we set down those false beliefs, we need to replace them in ourselves. It's not, with something else, you know, I mean, was it Bill Ingvall has a, 
comedy where he's going to go tobacco-free and he ends up on crack and cocaine because <laughs> he replaced tobacco with these other addictive substances. Well, we need to be addicted to the truth. And sometimes that can be painful. But it also means that we have to stop feeding at the trough of the lies. And so, by looking at these ancient scripts, we're trying to bring them into not necessarily a new light, but actual light. We're going to look at all the different things that people think are true, and I have to bring them up. And people say, well, I'm attacking their delusion, and that's a dangerous thing. I'm just trying to speak the truth. And there's many levels to that truth. And so... Sometimes I moderate them down a little bit. I, I hopefully by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so that people can chew on them a little bit, and think about them and ponder them. And you can go back. I mean, people who've gone back and read some of the first books, like the uh, the Covenants of the Gods, they say they read it every time they read it. Something else occurs to them that they didn't think about the first time they read it. And, of course, that book was written just to do that. It's written in a particular style to do that. I didn't understand it when I was writing it at the time, but uh, I actually had heard about this style before, but I didn't equate it to what I was actually doing until much later. But we, you know, we hide from the truth. And the, the, our, in our own tree of knowledge, there are certain subject matters we don't go to. They're unsafe, like the weather <laughs> or, or religion or whatever. And, of course, there was Rome was a very religious nation, but they had so many different religions, so many different gods, what they call polytheism, where you had a god of this and a god of that. And, but this monotheistic idea that there is one God creator that put all laws into motion, all truth into motion, all the logos, the right reason. You know, I have an opinion, you have an opinion, we all have opinions. But God's opinion is reality. The God, the monotheistic God's opinion is reality itself. By definition, that's that's the idea of monotheism. Is that whatever God is, there's a singularity in that God. And it only becomes fractured or fractal or divided or becomes 40,000 different denominations. When we try to define God, we try to create God in our own minds, with our own words, with our own doctrines, which is our own teachings. We're going to teach you about God. No, we, you have the ability to actually have a relationship with God. Unfortunately, because of the complexity of our own minds and our own souls, we can create an image of God in our minds. And, and of course, that's what you do. You know, you like, you look at statues of Michelangelo and, you know, his unfinished works. He carved, it looks like he had just this big block and he just went down and carved it down. <laughs> and there's this guy standing in this block. And 
before he did that, he had an image of him in his mind. And so we're going to maybe sometimes touch on that image. And we're going to do it going through 25, right after this brief break. Well, welcome back. So we're going to get into 25 just to finish up the last of our review of 24 where it did talk about this this abomination of desolation and that we were to flee that and understanding the nature of that, the spirit of that abomination because it's occurring again. Uh, And it's often occurred at due lesser, greater degrees all the time in every generation. And it, it actually can, that, that abomination, if we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that abomination actually dwells in us, not just some stone temple somewhere. It, it begins in us. And then collectively, our spirits commingle with other spirits that are following that same spiritual pattern, that violation of the law of God and nature. And, and it will manifest itself in many ways. We saw it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in San Francisco. <laughs> we see it in Los Angeles. Uh, many different forms that this abomination will take in society. In the thousands, millions, billions of individual temples of the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit is not dwelling, but other spirits dwell. And they create activities in the people that they have no control over. Because they've lost control. They've lost choice of that control. God gave us choice. That That is a simple basic premise. But we don't make a choice about everything. We make basic choices in our journey. Each of us are on a journey. And if you were, if you were driving from New York to L.A., you might take one road or you might take another road or you might take a side road or state highway or federal highway or or, or or go down by way of Mexico or New Mexico and Texas because it's wintertime you want to avoid those snowstorms or you might be in the summertime and then you'll cross you know another way in a more northern climate and but you'll make a choice back there at the beginning of your journey that will determine the choices that you make along the way. And because you won't have the same highways to go and turn down if you go the northern route as opposed to the southern route or vice versa. So you make a choice and then your choices alter. And you make another choice and they alter again. You know, what vehicle did you take? That may make a difference. I I read a story about a woman who lived, in, I think, in New Hampshire. And she decided she was given a terminal sentence by her doctor that she was going to die of cancer. And she sold everything that she had. And she started riding a horse. She bought a horse, I think, a, a burro, a donkey or a mule maybe, and her dog. And they set out on a journey to go see the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) 
That's what she wanted to do. She was going to die of cancer in like six months. Well, she didn't die in six months. She lived quite a way, a long time afterwards. Wrote a book about it. This journey on horseback. Well, she made this choice, you know, to go this journey. And it took her down all kinds of road, met all kinds of people. Uh, this was after World War II, I think. And uh, she traveled all across. And because she made one choice, she had lots of different choices to make. And if we make some wrong choices in our life, we won't see the same opportunities. We won't see the same truths. And we will go the wrong way. And I've mentioned this phrase, son of man, which appears quite a few times in 24. And and we'll talk about it in greater detail. But just to give you an idea, Christ also has a parable about two sons. One son says he's going to do it, but doesn't. He turns away from doing what he said he was going to do. And the other one says he's not going to do it, but then thinks again, well, you know, it was my dad. Uh, and he goes back and he actually does it. And which one was the son of the father? Well, the one who did it. So the references of Jesus as the son of man is the obedient son of the father. And of course, the father of us all is Adam, which is Adama, which is man. So to say that you're the son of man is... An idiomatic phrase that means I am the good son of mankind showing you the way of the father of mankind because Adam was the son of God. <laughs> in, a, in a way, he was created by God, but he wasn't obedient. He said he would do what God said, but he didn't. But the son of man, the son of the, the descendants of man, which is Jesus, is one of those sons. You are one of those sons and daughters. That, are you being obedient to the nature that God made you in? The image that God made you in? Or are you creating another image? And one of the ways to create another image of you so that you alter your very nature and therefore your choices is that you... You, you know you're made in the image of God, but you recreate God in your own personal doctrines. And when we finally visit the Nicene Council and some of the things that were going on in those days, we'll see how men were creating their own doctrines. And, and hopefully by exploring these things, we'll give you a heads up to find out if you're in the tree of life, eating in the tree of life, or if you mistakenly got over there in the tree of knowledge. And in the tree of knowledge are making decisions about your very immortal soul because it will take you down roads that your choices will not be the same. Your opportunity of choosing or seeing the truth will not be the same if you're over there in the tree of knowledge. You want to become that son of man that obedient son. And Christ is talking about that all the time. And how do you even know what an obedient son looks like? I mean, we can read the Gospels. and We, we can read the commandments. Christ said that we were to keep the commandments. And he summed them up in the two commandments. And so, like I said, if you're, 
if you're out murdering people, chances are you're not following the Holy Spirit. And if you're not following the Holy Spirit, you're not listening to the Holy Spirit, it may not be dwelling in your temple, in your heart. And so whatever temples or governments or buildings that you create, because, you know, all the temples of Rome were all government buildings. The tabernacle was a government building, but it was a different kind of government. The government that Moses created was the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. But the people needed to have the Spirit of God dwelling in their own hearts so that they could worship from their tents. They didn't need a big, giant stone temple with treasuries and all that stuff. Because the treasure of the temple was in the hearts of every individual. And that creates a different kind of society, a different kind of world. And it does it because it's using a different method of operating its government. And it has to operate it from the ground up. Now the problem is a lot of people turn away from the light. They're still fleeing the light. They're still living in the darkness. They don't want to see the whole truth. And so they go the other way. And so... Christ talks about a day of reckoning, uh, talks about the wrath of God, which is really just the consequences of going against that logos, the law of nature. And, and we can look out and we can look at nature, we can look at people and we can say, well, this guy is not acting naturally. Or these people are not doing what is the basics. You know, they're out killing, they're out biting one another, they're out coveting one another's goods, they're trying to figure out how to get something out of their neighbor for free. Well, they're doing that because there's an abomination already living in them, in their temple. And then all those people get together and they create the abomination of abominations of desolation. (laughs) And, And they create institutions that will have the same spirit living in them. And those institutions will go out and literally murder people. And then the people say, well, we didn't do it. You know, it's the government's fault. <laughs> but the government is their own creation. You know, one of the first science fiction movies I ever saw, I think it might have been Planet X or something. I can't remember all the stars in it or anything. I've talked about it before, but I have an image of it, but I have to think about it. But, but the, it ended up that the monster was created by the mind of the guy who lived on the planet. And uh, and it was actually, you couldn't destroy the monster until the man was destroyed. Because as long as he could think, and he, he didn't necessarily even realize that he had created the monster. With his own mind, with his subconscious, he created the monster. Well, the truth is, People talk about the mark of the beast. Well, we create the beast. Because our thinking, we've made a wrong turn in our thinking and went away from the ways of God. And which is why in 24 he talks about who is faithful and who is wise. Tells us to watch and be ready so that we don't become invaded personally by false spirits, false doctrines, false teachings. And they get into our minds and into our being 
and we propagate them under the guise that they are true and good things, but they're not. And they will create desolation. And then he talks about who is the evil servant and ends with that they will, their portion will be amongst the hypocrites. He talks a lot about hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and right after that, without a chapter division, because the chapter division wasn't in there to begin with, <laughs> he gets in to Matthew 25. And he starts with, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. There's full of metaphors in there. Ten virgins. Uh, kingdom of heaven. Uh, the bridegroom. Why are the ten virgins going with their lamps? What do the lamps represent? And who is this bridegroom? Well, of course, we talk about the bride of Christ, which is supposed to be the church. And we also talk about a harlot who is not the bride of Christ, but a substitute. And the difference between the bride of Christ, that is a more precious than a ruby, according to Proverbs, is the servant uh, taking care of the needy. And the difference between that and the harlot, is the harlot rides a beast. The harlot sits on a beast. And the beast wanders about. Devouring who it will. So now, with those metaphors in mind, we will continue to read. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. They had no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, you know, we just saw that in 24. He was talking about persevering and watching and waiting, being vigilant. Because, you know, he talks about this idea of tearing. That because the wrath of God is the consequences of leaving the logos, of abandoning the whole truth and rejecting part of the truth or fleeing the light of the truth. And we say, well, he's got away with that. Well, no. The consequences are in the universe. They're, they're coming. But there's often a delay. There's an opportunity for repentance during that delay. But there's also the opportunity of sloth and avarice and, and strain. Because you don't get immediate, you know, results from being attentive. We'll see where the apostles are taken with Jesus to go and pray in the next chapter. And they keep falling asleep. And Jesus has to go and wake them up. And the last time he doesn't even wake them up. He said, oh, let them sleep. (laughs) Because he knew they were about to be woken up anyway. And of course, when they were woken up, they ended up becoming afraid and fleeing and, and abandoning Christ, because they didn't stay awake. And of course, that's that's the journey for all men. 
to awaken and stay awake, not be slothful. But so these virgins, there was five that were wise and took oil with them. And oil is a metaphor. It represents something. Oil is what you're anointed with. And there's all kinds of oils. But the idea of these oils are representing a spiritual oil. And how do you get that oil? How do you make that oil? Most oils at that time were made by pressing something that would produce the oil. There were other things that we would call oil that uh, came because you heated them, you distilled them. And uh, that was a different kind of oil. But the oil for your lamps was usually came from pressing, you know, like olive oil. Pressing those deals. And there's a whole way to make that press and, 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 and get them out. Now, we use a lot of chemical ways today and you don't get the same results from your oil. <laughs> we can do that with false religion. False religion can give you real good feelings. You know, like a, an oil massage. You know, you can feel really good. But uh, if they're using bad oils, it may have a detrimental effect. <laughs> so, anyway, so these some had oil with them, like the wedding garments we saw in the previous chapters. You know, all the people come to the wedding that finally come, the ones that should have come, don't come. They're off there in their false religion and their their own personal pursuits. They made a choice. Not to come. And that altered everything that they're not going to be in the, the, the festival of the, the bridegroom and the bride. The feast of that. They're not, they're going to go with the abomination of desolation. They won't even, they won't even knock at the door like we'll see the foolish virgins knocking at the door. They won't, they won't, they'll just be consumed. Like the people at Pompeii when the the volcano went off. They, they didn't get very far. Some of them were fleeing, but the ash cloud moved much faster than they could run. And they were just devoured and swallowed up. Some in the streets, some in their houses. And they were consumed. Others may have left the day before. I saw an excavation just actually in the last week of an archaeological site in Vesuvius where it appears that the baker who had moved there was a Christian. And they had lots of reasons to believe why he was a Christian. And there's actual, they've uncovered a painting of him and his wife in the house. And we know they were bakers and we know they came from somewhere else and they appear to be Christians based on the things that they plastered over the symbols that they plastered over and the things that were displayed in the house. But I don't think they found the bodies in the house. (laughs) Now, maybe they died out on the streets or maybe they left the day before. Who knows? So, this, this is the key, is that you're either, if you make the choice to flee the light, you will live in darkness. And your choices will be different. If you, if you go to the light, you will have access to information that other people will not have access to. 
But you still need, and we'll see this with Peter, you still need the Holy Spirit in order to even act. Faith is a gift. It's not something that you decide to have. It's a gift. I mean, the faith that Christ is talking about. You can have faith in, in this, and you can have faith in your ability, and you, you know. But that, that's the strong man. Uh, healthy men, you know, guys who are very athletic, they have a great deal of faith in their physical prowess. Men who are very intellectual have a great deal of faith in their intellectual ability. But Paul says he was a wretch. Took a very humble approach. Said, you know, I can't figure it out. I, I, I don't know the answer of myself. I thought I did before you knocked me off my high horse. <laughs> but, uh, he realized that the only way to know is by this tree of life. And his intellect was like the rich man's wealth. That he has to unburden himself of the wealth in order to receive the Holy Spirit. And the intellect, intellectual has to be able to set aside his pride in his opinions. Especially when they come into conflict with the opinion of God. Because the opinion of God is right reason. It is the Logos. So, they, the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, and they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. We didn't bring enough oil for our own lamps. So they want to use the oil of others that came by a great deal of labor. You know, you had to go pick all those olives. You had to get them in the right condition and position and put them in this basket that you wove and then put them in the press. And the press is made out of a huge long log that might be 20 feet long, 30 feet long even. And then you put rocks, you pick up rocks and put them in another basket that is putting weight on the fulcrum which is where the other olives are, until you squeeze the oil out of those other uh, olives. Huge amount of work to get a small amount of oil. But of course, this oil is a metaphor. But the work that they know to get that oil is also a metaphor. And the light you get from creating that oil and having it in your lamp is also a metaphor. So before we're done, let's hopefully we'll talk a little bit about how you get oil for your lamp so that you can take the light of God with you into the dark places of our future to come. Because each of you will need your own light with you. But you'll need it to guide you in the time of darkness when it comes upon you. Because note that The bridegroom comes at midnight in the absolute middle of the darkness. Midnight. And you're going to need that oil. Each of you are going to need to light your own lamp to get through that. 
And hopefully you'll be able to say, Lord, Lord, why hast thou forsaken me (laughs) in this darkness? And it means something. So all the virgins, they trimmed their lamps. They asked, the, the foolish ones wanted to get the oil of the wise ones, but it was too late. And the wise answered saying, not so. Lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. This sounds like the day of Noah. <laughs> what, what a, wasn't there some mention of that before? When we were talking in 24, that like the days of Noah, you know, everybody wanted in when the water started getting high, but it was too late. The doors were shut and sealed. So that seems to be a principle that, that there is a delay. There is a Terry. There is some time to get your life right with God and his righteousness. And there are a lot of people that foolishly don't do that. They waste their time. They say, oh, I'll get, I'll get back to you. I gotta go do some other stuff. They, they procrastinate. Not a good thing. Not a good thing with the virgins either. But we'll talk more about this when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, in this chapter 25 down there in verse 10, that they have to, uh, go and get more oil because they didn't have any with them. They didn't have sufficient oil with them. There wasn't time to make new oil, so they were gonna go and buy that oil. Now, how, how do you go buy that oil if that oil is a metaphor? And how far do we take the metaphor? And what is the oil a metaphor for? And these are the questions that you you can ponder individually. We'll give you little hints as we go. But uh, the question is, do you have oil in your lamp sufficient for the dark times to come? And, and of course, I'm not talking about a patriot generator <laughs> so that you can, that you can do all that. But uh, actually, you know, the the oil that Christ is talking about. The oil that's in, that's in the lamp of your own heart, and because when they went to buy that oil, the bridegroom came, and and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, to the marriage festival, to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards came also other virgins, saying, "Lord, Lord, open to us." Those other virgins who had gone to the market to get oil. Open to us. Lord, Lord. They're praising. praising. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Now this idea of I know you not, we see this where that many are saying Lord, Lord, but they're not doing the will of the Father. And, and this, 
the parable says that I know you not. I never knew you. And, and he, he talks about many who will come in my name. But I, I know you not. So there's many. By that statement, we know that there, there could be many people today that think they are Christians. Think that what they're doing is great things in the name of Christ. Based on the word that we see written in the gospel. But the response of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God is, I never knew you. You didn't really know him. You you believed in something. You believed in some sort of image of Christ. And it gave you certain feelings of belief. But it was not the truth. It, it was, The belief that you had was not belief in the real Christ. It was in a false image of Christ. Created first in your own mind. Now, you, you might not go out and create a statue too. A lot of people think, well, I never created a statue. But you created an image of Christ in your heart and in your mind. And it led you into the darkness. It led you away from the light. And because you were in the darkness and away from the light, you didn't see what the righteousness of God really looked like. And you pursued things that were not righteous, that were maybe wicked, evil, Cruel. You know, like leaven. Leaven represents cruelty. You have to get the cruelty out of your borders. The leaven out of your borders. This was the message that we've gone over when we did our study on Exodus. And looked at the word leaven. It has to do with being cruel. Covetous practices will make you merchandise. According to Peter in the New Testament. And desiring benefits from men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Men often in government. I mean Christ even uses. You you see the governments of the Gentiles. Who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. They provide benefits. They provide the, the free bread of Rome. They provide through the temples of Rome. Through the polytheistic temples of Rome. But they're not doing it according to the logos. According to the way of God. According to righteousness of God. They're providing those benefits by taking away from your neighbor. Or even taking away from people that you've labeled as your enemy. Oh, well, we can, we can take from them. We, we can conquer them. We can destroy them. But if you decide to go that way, we know, which we'll see in the next chapter, <laughs> that he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And, and they will be desolated. But to flee desolation, we have to flee towards the righteousness of God, which is the way of God, the way of Christ, the way of the early church, not the, the churches that came much later, that reinvented Christ, reinvented the way, reinvented the church, nor the daughters of such churches that reinvent the church, that follow the same way that is not the way of Christ. 
and does not have the oil that comes from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have that oil. It, has, it may have some oil. Maybe it's a petrochemical oil. <laughs> I don't know. But it's not the oil of, of God. And it will produce a different result. It will produce all these wars and rumors of wars and, and uh, collapsing of the unrighteous mammon. I mean, mammon is entrusted wealth. That is what the word originally means. And we were to be friends with the unrighteous mammon if we're, we've already become bound in that entrusted wealth, if we become a part of that, if we become a human resource for the unrighteous mammon, we may have to be faithful in that bondage, the same as we still had to make tally of bricks in Egypt. We may still have to do that. But we need to turn around our thinking and seek the kingdom of God, which operates by a different means and method than the pharaohs and the FDRs and the Nimrods and the Canes of the world. We have to look for a different way. This is how you will eventually be able to produce that oil that you're going to need. <laughs> so, they, they, they tried to enter and they said, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Which we see repeated in numerous other verses. Watch therefore, ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So that's verse 13. But we saw that same idea back you know, when he was talking about the abomination of desolation, where no man knows the day. No one knows the day and the hour in verse 36. And so, that hour actually could be many different hours too. Because each of us, you know, if if the temple was a metaphor for the individual temple of every man this body that we live in, then each of us have our hour of recompense or destruction for ourselves. We have our own challenge in our own life. And we all, you know, since the day of our birth, we were all on our way for the eventual consequences of that birth, which is facing death. So, there is a grand scheme of things that may be repeated over and over again in the history of mankind because it's part of this built-in law, logos, right reason, that if you go down this road, you're going to end at this destination. And you're going to have different alternatives on that journey. If you're seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, it will give you alternatives, other choices to make. And each of those choices will require usually a surrender of all the other choices. I could do this, I could do that, but I'm going to do this. I can't do all of them, I can only do one. So when you make a choice, it limits your choices. But hopefully you make that choice based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then God will create opportunities for you.
in verse 14, the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one talent. To every man according to his several ability. And straightway took his journey. So God invested in us. He invested in Adam and Eve. He says, here's the garden, here's the dominion. Dress it and keep it. Don't eat of this tree as a source of what you do. This tree of knowledge, but eat of this tree of life. And it will guide you in in your dressing and keeping. This job that God gave Adam and Eve. This trust This dominion, he gave them in trust with conditions. Dress it and keep it. Don't eat of this tree. Only eat of this tree. You can eat of all the other trees, but this representative tree of knowledge and tree of life, that is, the tree of life is to be the source of your choices of what is going to be good and evil. But if you try to decide for yourself, you're going to have different consequences. And we certainly see that. Then he that had received the five talent went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained another two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoned with him, with them. And so, he that had received five talents came and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done! Thou good and faithful servant, thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So he got more because he had done well with what he got. This whole parable is very clear evidence in my mind that God is a capitalist. You invest your seed in the soil and it produces more. And then now you have the opportunity of taking what it produces and sharing it with other people. Redistributing the wealth that you have produced with other people in a way that strengthens other people because you love other people the same as God loved you to give you the talent that you had. Which is why a lot of people go into farming. You know, it's, it's, it's because they, they, they have this desire to produce more with what they have to begin with. And there are probably few opportunities to do that as clear as in farming. Although there's a certain amount of risk in farming. But the same in manufacturing. Where you take this raw natural resource and this raw natural resource and you put them together. And together what you produce is worth more than all those natural resources. Maybe ten times more than all those natural resources by themselves. 
and all the labor that you went into to produce it. You know, I, I look at, you know, things that they sell, you know, complex things, you know, that would take, probably took hundreds and hundreds of people to make. Maybe a dozen different companies were in the operation of making this one small little thing that comes in a box. And they all work together, they all get paid, and they all produce this this item that you could not have made on your own. And they sell it to you for unbelievably low prices sometimes. And you think, well, how can they even make money doing this? I mean, if I just drove to town to buy it, it's worth more to me to drive to town than the object itself. <laughs> and I couldn't have made it in a hundred years. All the, the intricate, I mean, the guy who was making some of the first clocks and watches for navigation. It was so complicated, he thought he would never be, you know, if he took it apart, he could never put it back together again. It took him so many years to make. Because he had to make all those little parts and intricacies. But see, this idea of producing something more than what you have by investing your labor your time, your talent into that thing. That that's very godlike. That, and that's why God gave us that job to begin with, to dress and keep it. This dominion. Is because that is part of the nature of God. Is to produce more with less. So we see the same thing, he also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents besides them. This Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant, with what I have given you. I entrusted you with these things, and you've produced more. Thou hast been faithful. Over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown. That's kind of uh, an insult. <laughs> And gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money into the exchanger, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Now, speaking to a bunch of Jews at that time, now there was usury around. They had ways of cloaking it, a lot like the many Muslims do today. You know, they're not supposed to charge usury, but they 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 literally... <laughs> That they make a contract where they have to pay back more than they borrowed, but they don't call it usury. But it really amounts to the same thing. But he's actually saying it would have been better that you loaned it out for usury than to have done nothing with it at all. 
it would have been better if you'd just been a banker. If you, if you couldn't produce anything yourself and just loaned it out and made other people produce more. Because, remember in this story, he gives them five talents. He goes out and he produces another five talents, comes back with ten talents. And his reward for doing that is to get more stuff. Not that now you gotta give me the five talents that you produced extra because you did it with the original five talents that I gave you. No, he gets more. <laughs> because he expended his time and his energy to produce more. He was in essence the same thing when he let you lay down your life for your fellow man. And, and this is, this is the thing that, you know, young girls are not being taught anymore, haven't been taught for years and years. And, and it's actually, you know, the idea of a, a woman getting married, taking care of her husband, her husband taking care of her, and they producing children. And having an effect on those children, raising those children up. That's investment. You're, you're putting your heart into this most noble of all things, which is procreation. That's as close as we can get to creation is procreation. Where there was two little tiny cells, a person is walking and breathing and thinking. And, you know, they're, they're not getting married. They're not having children. That was one of the big things we talked about that when we studied Julius Caesar which you really have to understand in order to understand the Caesars, and that the choice that Julius's uncle made and the Roman people made and Julius Caesar made and then what he did to the Gauls and what the people chose not to do, they didn't prosecute him for war crimes. Instead, they hailed him and gave him more power because they thought that he was their salvation. And he funded all the temples so that they gave free bread out. They made these choices and it altered Rome. But one of the things that Julius had to do was make laws because less children were being born in Rome. There was population collapse amongst the Romans. Immigrants were having to fill the workplace, fill the army. Because Romans weren't producing enough children. Why weren't they producing enough children? Because they were a socialist state. Wherever you have a socialist state, you have to create laws to encourage the birth rate because you've moved into a non-natural environment. Socialism is not natural. Socialism is taking away the choices that God gave you from the beginning and giving them to somebody else, the collective or to the rulers of the collective or whatever. You're diminishing the character of every individual man in socialism. And so that will cause population collapse. That's what, you know, that's what what uh, Putin was realizing. He's passed all kinds of law. China was realizing they passed all kinds of law to encourage larger families. Yeah. Germany just brought in people from other countries, but now their their whole culture is diminished. You can see the example between them and Poland. Poland doesn't have terrorist acts and women getting raped in the streets and and all the things that Germany is getting now. Even Sweden it was becoming the, the rape capital of Europe. 
because they had brought in a different culture, which was diluting their own culture. And, of course, that's now, now taking place in America. But it's taking place in America because we already diluted the gospel. That we didn't understand that socialism, legal charity, charity by way of the state, which is the way that Rome went, is the way to the abomination of desolation and destruction. And that's what the people did, is they went the wrong way. The way to destruction. And so, the Lord answered to the guy who produced nothing. Invested nothing. Just let it sit there in the dirt and did nothing. I don't know what he was doing all the time, but he wasn't doing anything with the gift that God gave him. And said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gathered where I have not strawed. Thou ought therefore to have put thy money in the bank and loaned it out. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. Because he didn't take anything from that guy who produced the ten talents. He gave him more. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. Therefore shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's that weeping and gnashing of teeth again. Cast out into the utter darkness. Because you weren't fruitful with the gift that God gave you. And a lot of time resentment keeps us from using the gifts that God gave us. When those people were in the bondage of Egypt, and they knew they were in the bondage of Egypt, they were in there because they had eaten at the table of Pharaoh, and they had made an agreement that a portion of their labor would now belong to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh made it worse and grievous through crafts of state, according to some translations. And now they were taking and taking and taking and taking. It was still 20%, but somehow or other that became burdensome. We talked about that in our study of Exodus. But now they had to make their tally of bricks and take care of one another without the benefits of Pharaoh. And they had to do this for a season. And they had to do it during plagues and during darkness because part of the plagues was darkness. But they were being prepared for liberty. Like I say, eventually everybody, when the unrighteous mammon fails, which we see them saying that the unrighteous mammon will fail, it's inevitable. There will be population collapse, economic collapse, uh, shortages of food, dearth in the land. That That's going to come just like it came to Rome. Christians not only survived, they thrived during this period. But they were doing what Christ said. The modern Christians are not. He doesn't even know them. They're not doing what he said to do. And then he's going to talk about when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. But we'll talk about that when we return to the keys of the kingdom after another brief break. Well, welcome back. So we're looking at the separation of the sheep and the goats in verse 31 of Matthew 24. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. 
the holy messengers with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd does divide his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left hand. So he's not getting rid of the goats. <laughs> he's just separating them. And of course, now, yeah, I've raised sheep and goats. I've, I've studied shepherds from all ages as well as the Bible and all kinds of ancient scripts and everything. Uh, goats and sheep can actually crossbreed at least once. Uh, you get something like a mule. Uh, in the sense that it's usually sterile. I mean, it's like you can actually cross lions and tigers, but they're so different that what they usually produce is is uh, a hybrid of some sort and is usually sterile and doesn't produce anything else. Uh, bears do the same thing. Polar bears and grizzly bears, uh, they've done this also. And you get different results when one's a male and one's a female. So it is very common that when you herded them out on the range and they're out looking for food, uh, goats and sheep will actually separate to some degree and the goats will be along the outside of the herd and the sheep will usually, range sheep, will be in a tighter group uh, grazing together. They stay within sight of each other, range sheep. Divide off into small groups, not tens, usually sevens, and but those groups are aware of the other groups, and they will actually graze shoulder to shoulder. If they if they're in a really unusual area where they are very concerned, I've seen, you know, a hundred and twenty sheep shoulder to shoulder. I mean, actually, so they touch each other. Uh, they'll separate at times when they go around brush, but then they'll come back with their heads down, eating all the time, moving forward in a line. Uh, because they have this habit of staying together. And it's part of their defense. It's part of their survival mode. Goats, on the other hand, they'll be spread out. They'll be climbing up in the rocks and they'll be all over the place. But when you bring them in at night, you don't usually put the goats and the sheep in the same pen. You'll put them in different pens because they will crossbreed. <laughs> now, you don't always have bucks with your sheep, but uh, in, in the season of breeding, they do that. So that was a common thing, but he's using this as a metaphor where he separates the personalities of those that have that hear the voice of the shepherd and are the sheep of the shepherd and the goats. Because the goats are very independent. They're, they're not going to follow in the same way. They're more like the difference between a cat and a dog. A dog's going to be loyal, going to follow his master. A cat's on his own. And the goats by their nature. And it, it's valuable to have those goats out with the sheep because they become sentinels out around the borders of the herd. Kind of like, you know, uh, when Jacob was facing the coming of Esau where he, he created the division. The ones that he held more valuable <laughs> were kept in, in one group. I always thought, how did that create conflict? <laughs> but uh, that was a fascinating story. But anyway, back to this idea of separating the goats and the sheep. 
and, and equating this with all nations and putting one group on the right side, that again, that means something to put them on the right side and the other one on the left side. And, and it, the same as there's a tree of knowledge and a, a tree of life. And the tree of knowledge is, has a place. And you don't want to mix those two. You don't want to mix the, the right hand and the left hand. And so you, you've got the sheep separate. Well, the same as when we, we talked about, you know, the wedding feast. Those that were going to go to the wedding feast, there's the bridegroom, which is metaphorically the church, which is technically the called out, which would have been the Levites, the church in the wilderness, the called out in the wilderness were the Levites. And there is this institution that Christ created when he appointed the kingdom, and that's what we should call the church. And that does, re- I, I see these home churches saying, we don't need ministers. We don't need preachers. Well, look, you don't need the preachers that you have in most of the churches today. I agree. But what was Paul doing? Paul was collecting money because this is what was the thing in the post that he made was that, you know, we don't need these preachers who want to collect money for themselves and all this stuff. Paul wasn't collecting money for himself. He talks about that. I, I have a right to eat of the money that I collect, but I have other sources that I depend upon so that I don't put any burdens on the congregations that I serve. But he was still collecting money. What was he doing with that money? Well, the early church was the entire social welfare of the whole church, of the whole assembly of the faithful, which really wasn't shouldn't be called the church, but... You know, those that are following the way. Because that's what Christianity was called, the way. Those following the way looked to the church for their social welfare. And the church was rightly dividing the bread from house to house. Where did they get that bread? From the donations of the people. And that's what Paul is out there collecting funds to help the needy of the community of Christians. Today, the home church group, they say, oh, we believe in Jesus and we have, you know, we have faith in Jesus and we read the Bible and we understand Christ and we have this image of Christ. But 99% of all their social welfare is provided by men who exercise authority one over the other. Now, you talk about strong delusions. Jesus said it's not to be that way with you. But it is that way with the people which is why they've returned to the bondage of Egypt. And they're not the sheep of Christ. They're the goats who went their own way. Now, he still gathered the goats, some of the goats. I don't know. Maybe he didn't get them all. (laughs) His sheep hear his voice and they come. And the goats may hear his voice and they come. But... uh, he, he still separates them. Just uh, that the, you have the bridegroom. And I was talking to somebody about something. I'll throw out the word one time here, or the phrase one time here. Um, actually, I won't. I'll, I'll save that. <laughs> I thought I would, but then somebody said, no, we're not going to talk about that. But this marriage of the bridegroom and the, and, and the bride. You want to be at the festival. You, you want, you, foolish virgins or wise virgins, you want to be there and you want oil in your lamp. 
Now, again, that's a metaphor. What is? It, how does that translate down into the real world? And you also are going to want the wedding garments on because he's talked about that. Now we've already dealt with the wedding garments. I have a whole article up on wedding garments. I I don't have an article up on oil, but I there's a lot to be said. But the same as the Son of Man. There's many many layers to that. So he's talking about the same thing here when he's talking about this goats and the sheep. But he goes right into. In verse 34, Then shall the king say unto the right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the word there is constitutional order and system of government, which is there's lots of different governments. At the foundation of the world goes all the way back to Cain who created the first city-state. And and Nimrod, who was a mighty provider instead of the Lord, who created Babylon. And now, of course, we're in Babylon the Great, where your mighty provider is the government. Takes care of all your social welfare needs. You eat at his table. He's a, he's a ruler, and you eat at his table. And David tells you this. Paul quotes David. That table is a snare and a trap. And there will, it, it is a stumbling block. And of course, when we, we get to the Nicene Council and, and, and the, the different church that was being created at that time, we will see evidence that many of those new bishops were stumbling at that stumbling block. They were promoting a church that did provide for the needy of society through a great deal of charity. But not entirely. They had another operative in the process that contaminated it, made it an abomination of desolation. And, you know, it, it goes up and down throughout history and we can explore all that. But here we're talking about the sheep that hear his voice, inherit the kingdom, have a link there to an article on not inherit the kingdom because Paul talks ex- extensively about those who have no inheritance in the kingdom. That's a big long list of things that these we should have nothing to do with those people and those people need to know that they have no inheritance in the kingdom because of what we just saw. Jesus says several times through the Gospel of Matthew, I know you not. Why? Because you're doing all that big long list that Paul gives us in several places. And yet we have churches out there that say, no, you can do all those things. But you just have to believe in the image of Christ that we give you, which is false doctrines. It's the doctrines of men. And you can see it coming about in history, and we'll go through that. It comes about as soon as you start seeing men focusing on doctrine rather than deeds. Focusing on what's in your head rather than also what is in your heart. Now, God, is, the, the prophecy of the covenant is from Jeremiah to Hebrews is that God is going to write upon 
your heart and upon your mind. If if you have men writing upon your mind, that that cancels out the Holy Spirit. It cancels out God. So sometimes you're going to have to set down what men have already told you is true in order to hear the truth that God is trying to tell you through the inspired work of Matthew. For I was hungered and he gave me meat. I was thirsty and he gave me drink. I was a stranger and he took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now these are people who don't even know why they're brought into the kingdom. Uh, and put on the right hand side. They don't know. Well of course we're here. Because we're Christians. We have a belief. We have a faith in Christ. They didn't say that. They said like. We don't even know what you're talking about. We we don't even. We don't even know that we did this for you. Anywhere. And But he says. When you did it to the least of my brethren. And I didn't say. When you did it to the least of my. Uh, of people. In general. It wasn't because you fed people because they were poor. It was because you fed his brethren. Well, Matthew's already defined what his brethren are and who his brethren are with other stories that he who does the will of my father is my brethren. So it's very important to understand this concept. That doesn't mean you don't help other poor, but you want to help other poor in a way that strengthens them. Otherwise, you're just a bunch of mini nimrods. That, uh, and you're still going to create Sodom and Gomorrah. Because that was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, that in a time of affluence, they did not strengthen the poor. They weakened the poor. And we've already done lots of shows and articles showing you how legal charity weakens the people. It degenerates them. We've known this for thousands of years. Philosophers have written about it. That if you become accustomed to eating, you know, the benefits of men who exercise authority. You become accustomed to eating at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others, which everybody in the world has done. That you will degenerate. You will institute systems of force and violence. To take away from your neighbors so that you can have stuff for free. You will do that. And you've done that. And you will be turned into perfect savages. And your government will become a beast. And become tyrants. Everybody's complaining about the tyranny of government. What about the tyranny of you over your neighbor? Taking away the choices of your neighbor. You don't, your schools aren't funded by charity. Legal charity, not 
fervent charity, not the charity of Christ. Your health care, your welfare, your social security, all funded by force and violence. This is contrary to the teachings of Christ. If your ministers aren't telling you, you need new ministers. You can go pick them in the kingdom of God. They're not going to be appointed from the top down. And you don't pick them by mass elections like they did in Milan where they picked Ambrose. Another story. So he goes on in verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand. So now we're over there on the left hand. The goats. <laughs> the guys that have their own way of thinking. I've raised goats. <laughs> Their good points are their bad points. Very independent. He says, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Now, a fire is a metaphor there. So let's not get carried away with our metaphors and create all kinds of doctrine around them. Prepared for the devil, the adversary, and his angels, followers of the adversary. And I was... Hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer unto him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and a thirst, and a stranger, and naked, and sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, so he just, you know, Jesus just said the righteous. He said, not those who believe, but he said those that are righteous because the, the righteousness that they perform is simply evidence of their true faith in the nature of God and Christ and the way and the Holy Spirit. It controlled their actions. I've seen this in people where they chose to do things and they couldn't tell you why they chose to do it. But they chose to bless the way of Christ and the works of Christ and those speaking of the ways of Christ. If you had a, a conscious debate with them about the gospel, they wouldn't get it. They, at least not at that time. But in their heart, you could see the evidence of God writing upon their heart. And they went out of their way to help the true ministers of Christ. And, and and this is the way it works. It's not about your catechism, your personal man-made doctrine that you've gleaned out of the tree of your knowledge of the Bible. But it's it's when God is writing upon your heart and upon your mind. And you'll say like, that's not right, but that guy over there is doing what right. I'm going to, you know, they're fascinated by it. Sometimes they're fascinated by it. At the same time, they're a little intimidated by it. 
and uh, which is why I often don't get invited back to say I get all kinds of praise when I'm on different podcasts and shows and sometimes in other churches that they, that the people are just so overwhelmed. I don't know if they're all just a bunch of liars or what, but they don't invite you back. It may be because God's not going to give you a lot of chances. <laughs> and he does in lots of other ways. But uh, the reality is, is that this is a hard message. It was a hard message when Christ delivered it. It was a hard message when Matthew sent it out. I think the Gospel of Matthew made it to Parthia before some of the others. I mean, there were there were lots of people writing about in, in, the, in private letters and everything about Christianity and the way they, were, they didn't call it Christians yet. But the way, which is this way of living by charity, by faith in a divine law, a divine presence that is built into the universe. A single source of what is righteous and what is not righteous. What is the logos and what is something contrary to right reason. Like our article on right reason and on logos, the... And on the natural law, they are all overlapping concepts because God is the same then and now. His laws are the same then and now. But when the Pharisees tried to make the statutes of Moses laws instead of what they were, which were judgments, so that people can look up how, how Moses decided things so that they could see... Are we deciding this based on the logos of God, the word of God in our hearts and in our minds? Or are we letting our prejudices and our anger and our resentment get a hold of us? I see in the news every day, you know, with some of these conflicts in the Ukraine and and Russia and all this stuff. There is just an absolute confusion about what's going on. Yes, a lot of times they're missing facts, but sometimes when you point out the facts, they don't even want to hear the facts. They've already decided on an emotional basis. We see the same thing in that nation called Israel. And and the Gaza and all the Arab countries around them. Now, I, I agree everybody has a right to defend themselves. But the means and the method matter. The end does not justify the means. The means brings the justification of the ends. And if you use the wrong means, you're going to get a different end. If you make the wrong choices, and and we'll see that in the next chapter, that Peter made a choice. We're going to see an event. He doesn't explain it as much just in this gospel, but if we take some of the other gospels that talk about the same event, we get more pieces of the puzzle. And that's one thing that, you know, I'm trying to do. I'll probably put a dozen extra footnotes in on our Matthew 24. I've been doing it all along so that you can see where these verses are repeated by others who write the gospel. And give us a little bit more detail. Put all those details together. Bring it into the context of the Old Testament and the New Testament and and, and the epistles and the history of the time. So, you know, like I said to you, when Jesus says, call no man father, I still, everywhere I read the debates on this, nobody points out that the emperor, even Constantine, 
but the emperor Augustus was referred to as the Patronus, the father of the nation. And, and in our laws today, we will find parents patria in Latin, in the U.S. codes, <laughs> because the government has become your father. It is it has become your benefactor. But the government doesn't give you anything except what it takes away from your neighbor or somebody else. Unfortunately, setting that precedent has allowed corporations to take all kinds. They get more welfare today. It's not the fault of capitalism. It's the fault that you did not understand Matthew 25. <laughs> Which I hope you have a better understanding of. Until then, peace on your house and may God bless you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.